Hey folks, Corey here. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about another program that I've come to really respect and enjoy. Best of the Left is unlike anything else out there because it's all about curation rather than creation. Jay Tomlinson has been producing the show since its inception and uses his years of experience to shape each episode in ways that dive deeper and bring out more details on topics than is usually possible from a single source. Each episode focuses like a laser on a different topic, allowing deeper coverage than any one show is capable of. With a deep catalog of episodes, Best of the Left has effectively created an archive of the progressive movement over the past decade and a half. The power of curation is in the bringing together of a variety of voices that combined become greater than the sum of their parts. And the show doesn't just curate news and opinion, but also activism, so listeners can turn information into effective advocacy. Just in recent weeks, they've aired episodes about native land back, about uh, neurodiversity, about positive masculinity. It's all relevant topics that many of us are engaged in today, and sometimes, as we know here on this program, engaged citizens can disagree on important matters, but I always come away more informed. But if you only have time for one episode, make it their milestone 1500th show, 1,500 shows. That's the show that Jay sets aside his normal curation format and instead lays out as many of the smartest ideas he's come, he's had or come across in all his years of thinking deeply about politics, it's definitely worth your time. As you'd expect, you can follow Best of the Left anywhere you get your podcasts. That's Best of the Left. And now, back to our show. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I really am grateful to have this place to talk about these big ideas, big ideas pertaining to faith and politics and our culture. And I get to talk about it with such interesting, accomplished people who come in goodwill, in good faith. And you know, today, right out of the gate, I want to give you a taste of what we'll be discussing today. As our guest put it in his new book, truth-telling and sincere efforts to repair past damage are met with defensive and often frantic attempts to protect the social and economic status quo. There is measurable progress, but it often comes at a price, and it is rarely linear. Oh, man. Wow, that couldn't be truer. I mean, my own experience comports with that. But before we start, it is my honor to share that we are part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And please remember, if you could take the time to leave a review on whichever podcast app you're on, that would really, really be helpful. Certain ones allow for ratings only, and that's great. Others give an option for writing a review, and that really does help us in terms of our rankings so that others can discover our program. And then, of course, tell a friend, tell somebody about an episode you heard or how wrong or crazy you think I am and how crazy this all sounds. Just tell them and then see if you end up getting into a conversation about politics or religion and, and maybe you'll be able to not kill each other over such subjects. 
The easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the socials, even threads. Uh, I am at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E, S as in Sam. Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Dr. Robert P. Jones. Dr. Jones is the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. You might remember us speaking with Dr. Melissa Deckman a few months ago, the CEO of PRI. And today we get to talk to PRI's founder, Robbie Jones. Dr. Jones is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, as well as the award-winning books, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and The End of White Christian America, uh, as well as other books. Robbie writes regularly on politics, culture, and religion for The Atlantic, Time, Religion News Service, and other outlets. And you might recognize him from his appearances on CNN, MSNBC, and NPR. He also writes weekly at Robert P. Jones on Substack. A news, it's a great newsletter for those dedicated to the work of truth-telling, repair, and healing from the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. Dr. Jones holds a Ph.D. in religion from Emory University, an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and an undergrad degree in computing science and mathematics from Mississippi College. Now, that caught, caught me off guard. From science and math to an MDiv at a Baptist seminary is far from the typical route, but we'll get to that. Robbie, thanks so much for joining me today. How you doing? Hey, great. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Now, in, in reading this latest book, it seems like the work you've been doing over the past 10 years, maybe longer, it's been like this long awakening so I was hoping if we could start, if you could describe how you grew up. And there was one illustration that you provided toward the end of the book, uh, like the big Western town play set that you got, mm. costumes you detail, um, how our experiences entrench a certain mindset that seems benign at first glance, like uh, playing cowboys and Indians, but is really part of the hidden roots of white supremacy. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. So in the deep, deep South, um, grew up uh, very active in the Southern Baptist Church of my youth. Um, and uh, that was kind of a part of, you know, everyday things. My, my family um, uh, roots go back is still in the South, like six generations in middle Georgia. Uh, so uh, in fact, uh, my siblings and I are the first generation not to have grown up and live in either Bibb County or Twiggs County, Georgia, um, uh, in six generations since the early 1800s. So yeah, roots go back um, fairly deep. And as you said, the the last three books and and the first one came out and the last three came out in 2016 and they were um, kind of an accidental trilogy, I guess. Um, You know, I wish I could say 10 years ago, I had this big master plan and I'm going to lay out these three books and here's the way it's going to be. But they really have been the result of my own journey of just kind of trying to put one foot in front of the other, see as much as I can see, um, capture it, you know, and write it, uh, write it up. Uh, and then as, uh, I kind of continue to think and do research and talk to people and learn, um, you know, realizing, Oh, okay, there's another, you know, uh, kind of turn of the prism uh, that I need to make here in order to, uh, and really, it is about me trying to wrestle this problem to the ground. And that is like, where does the kind of culture and religion that I grew up with um, inside this kind of white Christian 
Protestant world, um, you know, where does where does my faith end and and these kind of subtle and then not so subtle commitments to white supremacy begin? Because they were all wrapped up together and in ways that I wasn't that aware of uh, growing up. And as you said, kind of only in retrospect, you know, when I think about, yeah, what does playing Cowboys and Indians do? And, I, you know, when I write about it in the book, it was always the fight over who was going to have to be the Indians because they were going <laughs> right. to lose. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and also uh, just little subtle things like, you know, our little cowboy town, um, all of the Cowboys, there was an entire town, there were buildings, there was civilization. And uh, the the little Indian plastic pieces that came with the set had no homes. They were literally homeless. Uh, so the only thing you could really do was set up the buildings uh, here uh, and and then attack uh, the little outpost of civilization with the, the the little Indian figures. That's really the only script that made that made sense. And so even those little subtle things, right, kind of reinforcing who's civilized, who's not, who's the dominant culture, who's uh, an inferior culture, right? These things were kind of built even into the little play sets I had growing up. Yeah, yeah. And at, yeah, as you put it, it's these subtle things. Uh, so it, it sounds like it wasn't necessarily like a snap of the fingers and all of a sudden you woke up one day and realized, holy cow, I'm part of this larger system of, uh, you know, this mindset. But it was a gradual thing where you began to realize and the scales didn't fall off suddenly, but gradually. Is that is that fair to say? That's right. Yeah, no, it, it's been a, um, you know, painfully and like, you know, when I look back on it, sometimes embarrassingly slow uh, process uh, for me. And, um, you know, and it, it, there's little moments that you can point to where that are significant. Like one was, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 20s um, that I realized what the word Southern in Southern Baptist Convention meant right? mm. in, in, the, in the name of the denomination in which I grew up. Um, and, you know, I always took it to be a geographical marker, right? Just a compass point uh, kind of thing, because um, we were, after all, Southern. Um, but it wasn't until um, I was in seminary and I finally had a Baptist history professor tell it to me straight. And he just said, look, you know, this is about a Southern way of life, which was a polite uh, way of saying support for enslaving other people, um, right? Yeah. And that, that then was burst into the Confederacy. And in fact, the the split between Northern and Southern Baptists predates uh, the, the political secession. Uh, and in some ways, it was the dress rehearsal for political secession. When Because in 1845, uh, both the Methodists and the Baptists, which are the two larger Protestant denominations, split over the issue of slavery. And that happens in 1845, prior you know, to the political secession during the Civil War. And many of the people who were the architects of uh, the religious secession movement were actually in the room in Alabama, right, uh, for the political uh, secession. Um, they were the chaplains and saying the prayers and uh, and that kind of, and in many cases also the political uh, leaders. So, you know, just, again, not until my 20s, despite going to all kinds of Sunday school classes and, you know, education programs, uh, I was very active in church all through my adolescence and, and, and went to a Baptist college. And it wasn't until yeah, I had one professor who finally told me that story. And that was like, you know, just, and again, that was in my twenties and that wasn't like a once and for all awakening. And as you said, scales fell from my eyes, all that, but it was like this little seed of like, Oh, things are not all what they have seemed to be here. Yeah. Just been this kind of gradual process. You, you know, what's interesting is you deal with that 1845 Southern Baptist, how they split off from, uh, from the North, the, the larger Baptist um, convention, 
I don't even know if I'm using the right um, vocabulary there, but what's one of the things that kept on coming up for me throughout the book was how do we recognize in ourselves the reactions, those impulses, the language that that um, people used, and you, you trace uh, historical events in three different distinct parts of the country, atrocities that occurred to indigenous peoples and um, African-Americans in those three uh, different parts. And the language that was deployed to justify such atrocities, Mm. the language that was used even by Christian pastors in the aftermath of the atrocities. And then, you know, there's something, I think it was toward the end of the book where you recounted a lot of, uh, half a dozen, six of the major Southern Baptist seminaries very rarely come together for a joint statement. But there was a joint statement, I think it was uh, just recently in 2020 or 2021. Um, It's just striking, you know, like I said, the the, the question that continued to occur to me throughout is how do we recognize that language and those justifications and those impulses in ourselves? And there it was, half a dozen Southern Baptist seminaries came together in reaction to CRT, critical race theory. Um, so is that fair to draw that line from the 1845 mm-hmm. to the 2020 joint statement? Or am, well, I, am I making too much of a stretch there? Well, no, I, I think this is one of the things that history can do for us, right? Is that because I, I think it's easy, you know, most Southern Baptists, you know, and I would have said this too as a kid. I mean, most Southern Baptists would say, oh, slavery was awful, right? Terrible, you know, horrible chapter in American uh, history uh, and, and, and largely saw ourselves as disconnected from that completely, despite the fact that we were sitting in the denomination that was like the chief supporter of that worldview, right? Uh, and and use Christian principles and ideals uh, to support uh, enslaving other people, um, you know, biblical, quoting the Bible, right, to, to support that. And I think it's easy for us to go, oh, you know, how could that possibly be? And how could they have been so wrong? You know, and yet, uh, today kind of miss, um, you know, the similar impulses um, in ourselves. And I think, you know, we have a clue, you know, when we are, um, you know, repressing uh, uh, things, uh, that's, that should be a clue uh, that we're kind of off on the wrong track. And, and as you said, I mean, the, so there's six Southern Baptist seminaries. Um, and as far as I know, I, I tried to, you know, scrounge around and find it. I cannot find a single thing that the presidents of those seminaries have gotten together to say is of sufficient concern that we're going to come together, issue a joint statement on it. And the only thing they've done that for was to denounce critical race theory uh, and essentially to denounce, um, you know, the ongoing existence of systemic racism um, uh, in, in the country. So think about that for a minute, right? Not poverty, uh, not uh, climate change, not uh, uh, hunger, not and and not sexual abuse that's rampant uh, in their own in their own churches, right? Uh, but denouncing critical race theory seemed like the thing that that was important enough uh, for them to come together and make a statement. And you know, I, I think it's pretty clear when something like that has happened, uh, it's a defensive move, and it's a, it's a defensive protectionist move, right? Um, and that something has gone deeply wrong uh, when that yeah. when that happens. You know, that was another question that kept on hitting me in the face throughout the book. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's not that I, it, it's not that I'm wagging my finger. It's that I'm grappling with the church that I became a part of in my late 20s. I'm grappling with what 
primarily defines us. Uh, there's a, a quote from a fairly recent speech that uh, Governor Tate Reeves gave about the ban of teaching of CRT in Mississippi schools. He said, children are dragged to the front of the classroom and are coerced to declare themselves as oppressors, taught that they should feel guilty because of the color of their skin. So number one, this is absolutely not happening. But my question is, the image of it, 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 it serves a certain um, mythological function. And, and my question is, why even pretend that's the case? What purpose does it serve to conjure um, to conjure these these images? Is it is it a grievance that we need to um, to underscore or justify or make? I, I'm yeah. trying to make sense of it. So I do think it's 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 a politics of outrage and grievance. Um, that has been cultivated here. I think that's right. And then the question: So why? You know, why now? And and why this? And I think we see this movement, um, particularly in this reactivity from white uh, Americans and, and white Christian Americans uh, using religion in this way. Um, whenever there has been movement toward black equality, movement toward uh, racial equality um, in the country, not just with African Americans, but others like uh, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, etc. Uh, there's a kind of reactive move. So we saw it, you know, um, after the Civil War, right? Um, you know, and 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 for this coming from Mississippi is particularly rich, right? Because uh, you know, the, the Mississippi was reaching out to folks like the United Daughters of the Confederacy to set the tone for history textbooks um, after the Civil War, right? To ensure that there was a sanitized, literally whitewashed version of, this, of, the, of what the Civil War was about being taught to the next generation of Mississippi school children. So that's the history, you know, in Mississippi. Um, so I think it's especially rich for, for the governor of Mississippi to be citing, you know, something like this. But, but I do think it's this, there has to be a kind of conjured outrage, but it's really about um, this sense that they're no longer controlling the narrative, right? And I think that's that's what's different in our in our day is that we are living in this moment of reckoning where, uh, you know, these old assumptions, um, you know, that have everything back to, you know, yeah, let's just play cowboys and Indians and nobody will think anything about that. Um, you know, let's um, uh, only talk about or, or let's say out loud as the Florida uh, governor of Florida did, um, you know, that, well, black people got some benefits from slavery, right? It wasn't so bad. Um, we'll say those kinds of things, right? And we're in this, but we're in this moment of reckoning Confederate statues are coming down. There's a whole reevaluation of that public landscape. Uh, and I think this is a defensive reaction really to the moment, you know, we're in. You know, it's interesting because now it occurs to me that a lot of it is the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves to have a, a, a certain understanding of who we are. And some of that is um, mythology to make ourselves into the heroes or you know, these, these tragic figures or there's something about that. Now you use at times the first person plural, like in the very last paragraph of the book, mm. it starts out with we white Christians. So I did want to clarify the use of that, uh, the first person plural here. Are yeah. you using we as a reflection of who you are? Uh, or is it more of um, uh, like an exhortation of who you anticipate or hope to be reading the book? No, that's a good question. Um, you know, in that passage, I, I went and particularly with the phrase we white Christians, um, I'm using it as in a very personal way, right? That's how I identify, right? Um, so, uh, you know, a person of European descent, mostly British uh, descent, in my case, British and Welsh, um, uh, identify as Christian uh, still. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really, you mentioned finger wagging, you know, before, 
And, you know, I, I think one of the things I've worked very hard to do is to write um, particularly these books about white Christianity um, and make it very clear that I'm an insider to this conversation, right? I'm not standing way on the outside, wagging my finger, you know, at these backwards, backwoods Christians. Like these are like my people, my family, my relatives. Um, this is the world, you know, uh, in, in which I, I grew up in and still live in many ways. Um, so uh, it, it's, if anything, it, it's a, um, a kind of call and a plea uh, for us to uh, be better. It, 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 interestingly, it was, um, you know, uh, Baldwin, I think James Baldwin, uh, African-American writer, you know, when he was asked uh, so many times about hope and, you know, he writes so incisively about how deep the racial problems in this country are. And so he was often asked, well, gosh, you know, if all that's true, what, where do you find hope? And he would often kind of come back to this fairly simple phrase and he would say, you know, at the end of the day, I have not lost faith that we can be better. Um, and it was that simple uh, for him. And I, and I heard that resonate um, or echo in, um, I, I took a tour with a, um, a Native American uh, 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 man named Jim Bear Jacobs, who is also working with the Minnesota Council of Churches. And he gave a tour of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, Native American sites, uh, around there. And I, I, I just happened to be appended that day. I was just there by myself, but I got appended to um, a group of predominantly white Christian church uh, that was on the tour at the same time. And uh, Jim Bear Jacobs like ended the tour. Like, you know, he, like somebody asked him a question is like, you know, what do you want us to take away uh, from this tour? And this is essentially what he said. He said, you know, um, well, if I can just be completely honest with you, um, I don't just need white Christians to be smarter. I need them to be better. Um, so I think that's really, you know, what what I'm, I'm hopefully up to at the end of the day, uh, trying to be better myself, be more honest myself, and hopefully, you know, call others who come from this background to do the same. Yeah. You know, I grew up uh, observantly Jewish. My, my family went to an Orthodox synagogue uh, before I became a Christian in my late 20s. And I, one of my revelations a few years into becoming a Christian is that the way uh, Jews, the, our default posture with the prophets is uh, different than the default posture of my uh, brothers and sisters at the church. I, I don't mean to make light of this, but I, I think we understood that, you know, whether it was Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, we were talking amongst ourselves, you know, as opposed to like, you know, the prophets standing up on the street corner and yelling at the Ninevites or the, you know, the Persians or the Babylonians. You know, we were the, the exhortations were, were for ourselves. So it seems to me that this disposition is more in accordance. I, I'm not trying to you know, blow smoke and say that you're, you're a Malachi of our time, but, <laughs> but I think that's the right disposition is we have to be, um, we have to be humble in that way and, and always be checking ourselves, uh, at, in terms of, you know, where, where our own, um, culpability is, you know, not, not, not necessarily that we need to be taking the flagellum to ourselves all the time, but, um, there's a humility that that seems lacking, and, and you know I, I think the book is um, is helpful in that regard. It's 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 a, an important contribution to the conversation. Now you, you mentioned uh, your work with some of the indigenous folks 
you know, one of the one of the central questions that you deal with throughout the book, um, you say we almost choose between the doctrine of discovery and democracy. We can't have both. Have you begun to think that? First of all, I, I do want to dive into the doctrine of discovery. Mm. We we had the uh, pleasure of having Stephen Newcomb on the show a few months oh, yeah. ago. Yeah, and and so that I mean I I'm baffled by my own complete ignorance uh, to this history. So I was hoping that you could shed light on the, a little bit more light on the doctrine of, of discovery, but also um, then if if you would uh, have you begun to think about um, the folks that we go to church with, whether this is this might sound harsh to say, but do. I'm wondering if some of the folks I go to church with actually value democracy itself. Mm. So yeah. I, it's a big question because Doctrine of Discovery no, no, would require you. an entire episode unto itself. But if yeah. you would. Well, it's great that you had Steve on. I've learned a lot from uh, Steve Newcomb's uh, work, and he's done some really groundbreaking uh, work with other, along with some other indigenous scholars uh, on this. And in fact, um, I'm right there with you in terms of uh, my own ignorance about this. You know, I, like, you know, it's possible, like I had heard the term doctrine of discovery, you know, in my graduate work or something, but it never really registered to me as something central that I should be paying attention to that explains anything, uh, you know, unique or, um, uh, uh, or, or consequential uh, to our current situation. But the more that I kind of read indigenous scholars, Vine Deloria, Robert Miller, uh, others who've really written on this, the more I was convinced that, like, wow, we have really missed something in our history by not centering uh, this 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 thing that came to be called the Christian doctrine of discovery. So basically what it is, um, you know, is a set of 15th century um, uh, documents that came out of uh, the Vatican. Now, I should say that um, it's immediately people are going to think, oh, it's Catholic. Uh, but I, we should I should recall that this is before the Catholic Protestant split. Right. So everybody in Western Europe is like under this jurisdiction. Um, the only splits were between the Orthodox and the Catholic. There was no Catholic Protestant split at this point. Uh, so all the Western European states, you know, were affiliated really with uh, the, the Vatican uh, and, and the Pope in Rome. And so why in the 15th century? Well, it's the first European contact with uh, people in the Americas. And so it raises not only political questions uh, as in, can we, you know, what rights do those people have vis-a-vis -vis us? Can we go in and conquer them? And it raises religious questions like, who are these people? What's their relationship to the church's mission to baptize and missionize uh, the world? And these things got really melded. And um, what happens is the, the, the heads of state appealed uh, to the closest thing there was to international law at the time, and that was the pope about like, so give us a ruling. Like, it's essentially what they said. And it's really astonishing when you read the documents about what came down. Um, and it, they essentially said um, the logic of the rulings were the was basically this, that the criteria for whether somebody had human rights that ought to be respected or not was whether or not they were Christian. And if mm. these people were not Christian, they were considered, quote, enemies of Christ, end quote. So that's all non-Christian people. That's Jews, that's Muslims, that's uh, all Native Americans or indigenous people in the Americas um, that fall into this category of enemies of Christ. And if they are enemies of Christ, it went on to spell out then what was permissible. And what was permissible was to conquer, to kill, to occupy, to steal their goods. And then like these phrases that just, you know, still rattle around in my head, um, horrifically, 
and to uh, like, you know, one of the documents says, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, right? Mm -hmm. That's actually written from the hand of the head of the Christian church. Um, and so, you know, these, um, these documents, the last one that I kind of traced back to the Americas was, was written in 1493. Um, and, you know, that, that year should sound familiar to folks. It's not the year Columbus sailed the ocean yeah. blue in 1492, right? It's the next year when he returned. And he was asking for permission for more soldiers, more ships, more missionaries to come back and conquer. And he got that permission uh, in a document from the Pope in 1493. So these are very consequential and, and they, they stay with us. You know, uh, people aren't necessarily waving these documents around in later American history. But the core idea that th these lands were intended by God to be a kind of promised land for European Christians, that idea is alive, has been alive and well throughout American history. And, and in fact, is, is still alive and well with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sorry, I, I made it much more of a compound question. Yeah. Uh, so but, we get, there's a second part. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to tie that into our mindset today, it seems that um, retaining this sense of domination, for lack of a better word, um, is, is of greater priority than the concept of democracy. Yeah, it, it's domination, but it's also, um, I think, even thicker than that or stronger than that. It's a sense of divine entitlement, mm. right? So it's not the just supremacy, like, the supremacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, so the dominance comes from this sense that, hey, look, you know, we're chosen by God. Like, it's not us, right? We were sort of divinely chosen to occupy this space. So who are we to question it is kind of the way the logic runs. Right. And so then it also gives you license. You know, if you've been given divine mandate, I mean, all the means that you have at your disposal become legitimate. Right. Yeah. Including including violence. Um, so um, I remind me the, sec the second part of the question was. Um, yeah. Whether whether we've come to value democracy. At yes. All. Democracy. Yeah. Right. So here's what really jumped out at me um, is, is through particularly as, as sort of a student in the history of the South. Um Southern white Christians in particular have always had um, something of a utilitarian relationship with democracy. And we've loved to play lip service, right, oh, to democracy, yeah. right, yeah. and say, oh, no, we're all for, you know, democratic principles. But, you know, after uh, the Civil War, uh, when Reconstruction actually enfranchised African-Americans to vote for the first time and Mississippi, to stay with my home state, gets a state senator many elected people to Congress who are people of color, right? Who are African-Americans who are, and uh, the power, the, the power, the white power structures wouldn't stand for it. Right. And went, went about systemically disenfranchising black voters um, across the state. So that was a very narrow period where it was possible to elect and they use violence, terrorism, the KKK arose during that period uh, to basically make it so that black voters weren't voting because uh, and and uh, Alexander Percy, who wrote Lanterns on the Levees, Walker Percy's uh, father, um, the writer, uh, you know, wrote openly about uh, his parents' generation, his father, who he just said, who threw out the ballot boxes without which uh, or, or if, in that, that if those ballots had been counted, it would have been Negro rule uh, in, in the county and just openly talked about them just throwing out the ballots. Wow. Um, to, to prevent African-Americans. So we have this long history, I think, that has played lip service to democracy, but when power depended upon it, was more than willing to steal elections, throw away votes, uh, disenfranchise voters. 
Um, just one more quick story on this. Like even as late as 1955, um, I think uh, when the Emmett Till trial, who was you know this 14 year old boy who was killed while visiting his uncle in Mississippi from Chicago by two white men, um, uh, and, and uh, at his trial, you know it was a trial of all white men. There's 12 white men on the jury. Um, and I, I dig a little, did a little more digging on that. That wasn't that unusual in those days to have all white juries. Um, but what uh, what was notable is that, of course, you can't be um, uh, chosen for a jury unless you're registered to vote. That's where the jury pool comes from. They pick from eligible voters. Uh, and in 1955, the disenfranchisement of African American voters in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, which, by the way, is about a, a, a half African American, uh, there were zero. Hmm registered voters who were African-American in 1955. So there was not even anyone eligible to be picked uh, for the jury uh, uh, for that trial. But that's how thorough uh, this anti-democratic, systematic effort at disenfranchising um, African-American voters. So we don't have a great record, right? Um, uh, and, and, and those were all justified you know, by white Christian churches um, uh, all along the way. Uh, and, and for the few folks that stood up right during the civil rights era, in particular in the South, in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, uh, for the most part, uh, those people's tenures at their churches were very short. They were kicked out of the church when they stood up and said this is wrong. Yeah, there, there's one quote of one of the perpetrators of the killing of, of Emmett Till. Um, it's after I think it's after the trial. I, I can't even read the quote because it's laced with so many N word, mm. uh, you know, and. The, that that word, um, but if in looking at it, it's convicting because the mindset still pervades that sense of well, we're the good guys, and yeah. you know we're 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 the uh, we're the purveyors of what is good and what is right, and to the extent that they stay in their place, all is good, um, and that's the mindset from which it came, and to the extent that they thought that this this you know this person came, not even a person, they looked at him as something less than a, than a human came down from Chicago, from the North, you know, that he needed to be put in his place, that it wasn't just about putting him in his place, but, but, uh, you know, as a display for the rest of, you know, that region. And that, that one, um, hits really close to home, Mm -hmm. literally for you. Uh, that's the area that you grew up in. You know, I was curious how you distilled, like I said before, you, you dealt with these three distinct regions, Duluth, Minnesota, um, Mississippi, the, uh, and, uh, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. And specifically, you dealt with um, historic events that uh, atrocities that occurred to indigenous people and African-Americans in those three regions. How did that structure um, mm. occur to you? How did you formulate that way to approach this subject matter? Yeah, well, it, it started, um, I mean, it, it's one of those things where you kind of hone it over time as you're, you know, crafting the, the book and, and working on the research. I actually started with um, about a dozen uh, episodes of white racial violence against African-Americans. So Rosewood, Florida, Wilmington, Delaware, um, you know, there's, I mean, virtually every state has some record of these uh, and and just realized that, okay, that in, in terms of telling a story um, like 12 was going to be both too much and not enough at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 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 and then when I, and just repetitive, right. Not a, not a great way to kind of hear a story. And then also once I started digging in, uh, I, I think the new thing for me in this book that I haven't really done before 
is it became really obvious to me that um, we did need to tell that we often have um, Native American history and African American history in these kind of two silos um, and that we don't put them together. uh, And that by not putting them together, there is this assumption, I think, so for example, oh, well, white Americans just have a, a black problem. Right. Um, and, and we have a problem with slavery and a problem with the way we treat African-Americans. That's what we need to concentrate on to fix. Um, but it, when you see that the same logic that set up the transatlantic slave trade um, is the same logic and the same religious justifications for the genocide and removal of Native American people, you realize, oh, wait, you know, we don't just have, quote unquote, a Negro problem or, quote unquote, an Indian problem, which is the way white people tend to put it um, historically but we've got a white Christian problem, mm. you know, here uh, that we really need to deal with. So as it, as, as just as I dug into more of the research, I began to see these connections between the murder of Emmett Till, you know, and uh, the trail of tears, right. And the forced removal of native Americans from Mississippi, um, you know, prior, you know, hundred years prior uh, to that same thing in Tulsa, you know, the, the Tulsa race massacre where they burned down the entire African-American section of town. Um, and also the whole state of Oklahoma, its entire history um, is, uh, it, it was essentially um, uh, a dumping ground for uh, forcibly removed Native Americans. Like the, the U.S. moves something like 80,000 people in a forced migration in the 1820s and 30s from the Southeast um, and just forcibly relocated them in what was then unorganized territory, this little hole in the map and just said, Oh, we'll just put, put every, you know, forcibly put everybody there. And so you got, you, you know, you can't really understand uh, the burning of Greenwood and and Tulsa uh, without understanding that back history, Um, you know, and similarly in Duluth, you know, that, uh, that not only do we have this horrific lynching that occurs in Duluth, you know, the far North, uh, city of, of uh, Duluth, Minnesota, um, but uh, but Minnesota, uh, despite you know being this kind of northern state, um, is also the site of the the largest uh, uh, mass execution uh, in U.S. history, and it was when 38 Dakota men were uh, sentenced uh, to death, and that was signed off uh, on by Abraham Lincoln, um, yeah. right? Uh, and so, kind of just seeing how tied together these stories are, um, I think provided for me anyway, like a, a really different lens for not only seeing these two siloed histories that are, that are usually kept siloed, but, but for seeing the continuity uh, between them, which I think is often, often missed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it occurs to me as you're sharing that, that uh, there must've been plenty of folks in Duluth who survived witness, perhaps participated in the hangings of those uh, Native Americans uh, in the eight, uh, early 1860s, who also then witnessed or even participated in the lynchings of the African American carnival workers, and I think it was 1920. In fact, it was almost a hundred years to the day of the killing of George Floyd. If I, if my dates are correct, mm. isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very close. Um, now, there was somebody, uh, a character, if you will, a person, uh, but but a character that shows up. Because uh, th- this could sound really, really grim, but there are signs of hope. So mm. if you could, can you tell us who Mike Tuscan is and why oh. that's significant? Yeah. So Mike Tuscan's a police chief. Um, he just retired, actually, uh, but he's a longtime police chief uh, in Duluth. Um, and why he's significant is that um, it was a, a relative of his, uh, there's a great aunt, I believe, of his 
who was the woman who falsely accused these three black men of sexually assaulting her, uh, who were then uh, uh, lynched um, uh, in, in town. They were, they were kind of arrested and held for questioning and then pulled out of the jail by a mob and, and, and lynched. And 10,000 people in Duluth turned out uh, for that lynching. That's about a tenth of the population uh, of this mostly white town or overwhelmingly white uh, town. Um, so that's his, that's his relative. And he did not know that story um, until uh, uh, some people began to um, uh, decide that they really needed to tell the truth about this awful event and, and make a memorial uh, to these three um, African-American men uh, downtown. And he was the police chief while this was all um, going on. And so he actually learns about this, participates um, you know, in this in this process, and becomes uh, a very eloquent spokesperson for the need to tell the truth, even when it's painful, even when it's embarrassing, even when it involves your own family, right? But if the community was going to kind of move forward to a place of repair and healing, um, the truth needed to be told about the story. There needed to be a reckoning about it, and then even you know, and in, in Duluth, they were one of the earliest people to make. Um, a memorial to the victims of lynching. They did it in the early 2000s. Um, and so when the Black Lives Matter movement erupted, it meant that they had already established this plaza um, uh, uh, to, as a memorial to these men. And it was a kind of a gathering place uh, for um, people to come uh, and organize marches and protests. Uh, and it, it influenced the way that policing happened in Duluth, right? Because mm-hmm. as, as he had this uh, history in his and is he taught he he you know I interviewed him and he said you know yeah we were very aware we needed we, there was a policing job to be done we needed to make sure people were safe but we also didn't need to over police you know we need to let people uh, express themselves as long as everybody was you know uh, keeping safe we just need to kind of let that happen and let that civic space uh, work so I think it was a, a kind of real time example of how work even twenty years prior to the Black Lives Matter movement created this space. So there was a healthier expression um, of reckoning that, ha- that was able to happen in Duluth and a, um, a, a healthier uh, way of policing that happened in Duluth as well. Oh, man, there are so many more um, threads that I, I, I want to pull on. Uh, but you, I, I, do, I do feel compelled to ask you, you know, that, that part of the story is certainly encouraging and pointing in the right direction. But in the midst of uncovering uh, all of this in the midst of doing this work, has it ever caused you to question your own faith or your own theology, the, the, the undergirdings, uh, so, some of the assumptions, theological assumptions that you've built your faith on? Oh, I think that's why I'm still writing. <laughs> right. Trust, working that is, out? Is yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, that, that, um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, this just, just from this little kernel of truth about the beginnings of my home denomination is justifying slavery. Um, you know, it has been a long process of trying to disentangle, yeah, this white supremacy from my own faith and, and my own culture. And, you know, where does this, you know, and, and it's very personal to me, like um, two documents I've got that, I, you know, just kind of make it very concrete. You know, I have on the one hand um, uh, a family Bible. It was handed down to me from um, 18, 1815. Um, and it's got, you know, it's been a very prized possession and it's a religious object handed down from generation to generation. It's got like all these births and deaths and marriages and a genealogical section in the middle of the Bible. Um, so again, 
probably the oldest object I have from my mother's side of the family, a very prized object. And then I found doing genealogical research, the estate settlement from that same family that owned the Bible in 1815. And it turns out that, you know, along with, uh, and you know, you list everything you own in those estate settlements when someone dies and along with the feather bed and the table and six chairs and the, you know, a dozen sheep were four human beings listed oh, as, wow. as assets. Right. Wow. So the same, you know, that's how deep it's been. And, and I'm not unique. I mean, I'm my, and I should say like th- my family wasn't like the planter class. No, we weren't the kind of gone with the wind plantation owners. Like when I, when you convert their, do- the, their wealth into today's dollars, the entire estate was only worth about $50,000 in today's money. Right. So they were kind of basically yeoman, subsistent farmer class types, 200 acres. Um, but it, they had four enslaved human beings in order even to make that work right at yeah. that, at that level of things. So it's deep in sort of my own family, it's deep in my own denomination. And it's not, you know, it's also just deep in uh, kind of white American culture and white Christianity, um, uh, both Catholic and Protestant, um, you know, as a whole. And so I, I think it has been this, you know, I'm not done. Uh, I'm sure I'm not done. Um, yeah. It's still kind of ongoing, you know. Yeah. And we're, we're talking about disentangling centuries of uh, this entanglement of white supremacy and Christianity. So it's going to take more than one generation to sort it out, I think. It's a project over the course of generations. Yeah. And that work of doing history work on your own family is, um, wow, it, it's, it's so eye-opening and sometimes convicting and tragic and um, you just reminded me, uh, we uncovered some of the birth certificates and, and some of the, um, death certificates and marriage certificates. And uh, what is it? The, the census, uh, information mm. on our family and some of the Nathans go back not quite as far as your family, but to the mid 1800s and the census that was taken in New York city in 1860, uh, one of the Nathans, one of my direct ancestors, brothers, uh, there, there were uh, different um, uh, there occupations, you know, a street sweeper, merchant, and one of my one of my uncles was what his occupation was scoundrel, <laughs> so, <laughs> like scoundrel, right. yeah, scofflaw, scoundrel, or something along those lines. So I'm like, well, how did he how did he earn that occupation? Title? Yeah, I'm guessing the census taker did not show him that piece of paper with what he wrote, <laughs> and what he wrote down. Um, no, I mean, if I had to guess, I would guess at that time they collected it by knocking on a door and asking yeah. the person who, hey, who lives here and what do they do and what do they do? Yeah, he's a scoundrel, you know. Um, yeah. So uh, I did. Here's here's this is an important question. Um, at, toward the end of the book, it, you said something that really strikes at the heart of the project. Authentic healing flows from and true repentance is built on the twin pillars of truth telling and repair. And you do share some illustrations of how that's happening in Mississippi, in Tulsa, in Duluth to this day. Um, I was wondering, we've already touched on a, on a couple, but I was wondering if you could share uh, one or two stories of how that's happening, what that looks like now. Yeah, you know, I I I'd say like it was where I do find hope is in these stories on the ground, seeing what local people are doing. I think if we stay with the headlines, you know, the polarized headlines, and you know, you <laughs> talking politics and religion without killing each other, yeah. right? I mean, the whole thing is about the polarized world that we're 
that we're living in, um, th- it does seem a little bit hopeless sometimes. But I, I think I did find some hope by seeing some of these local people. I was talking about Mississippi. We talked about Duluth already. I was really um, moved by what I found in, in Mississippi. And, and so I grew up in Jackson, which is kind of the, the you know, the biggest city uh, in Mississippi. Uh, but but uh, this work is happening up in the Delta. It's up in the northwest uh, uh, part of the state near the, near the Mississippi River, south of Memphis. Um, very rural, very poor, uh, not a lot of resources. Um, and yet this intrepid group of, you know, like a dozen people basically got together, uh, some black, some white, um, and said, we need to tell the truth about what happened here with Emmett Till. Um, it's been buried. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it, it's still a part of um how we got to be this divided racial community that we continue to be. Um, But this meant that in this very rural, like the county seat town is Sumner, Mississippi. It has a population of 600, right? (laughs) So we're talking a very rural place here. And so that means that all these families know each other, right? And they know their grandparents. Um, And so this history is very personal and close to the ground. And yet what we saw is, or or what what I saw is, uh, descendants of enslavers and descendants of the enslaved and sharecroppers coming to and knowing that like your great great grandfather owned my great great grandfather like yeah. that kind of thing um, you know um, came together despite that history to try to move um, their local community forward to a different place. And they knew they had to tell the truth about this very tough thing. And again, not many resources. Um, you know, this is a very grassroots thing and they have, um, really succeeded with now there are historical markers uh, telling the story of Emmett Till. If you'd gone as recently as like 2000 yeah. to the Mississippi Delta, there's literally nothing there to tell the story. Um, and so there are now markers there. They've renovated the courthouse to um, put it the, back the way it was um, during the Emmett Till uh, trial. And the most recent thing uh, they, they've done is um, uh, based on that work that they did, um, uh, President Biden just announced um, just a month ago um, that there will be now a um, uh, an Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley uh, National Monument. Uh, that, but but that would not have happened without this groundwork being done on the ground. So now there will be something that will be perpetually maintained uh, by the National Park Service um, with federal support. But it all began really with this group of people that said we want to heal our community, and we can't do that without telling the truth about this divisive event um, in our past. Yeah. And do you know if there's been any progress in clearing space? Uh, that, that was the last part that, uh, um, that it wasn't easy to access where the body was likely found. Yeah. Yeah. All of that's, yeah. I mean, with, I think with the federal support, uh, and as part of the national, uh, park service, all of that, you know, is going to be set up so that it'll be, um, easy to find. I mean, I had to get somebody to show me where it is I mean, yeah. it's in a very remote down beside a field, uh, you know, kind of thing. And, and so yes, access to all, all that will be improved. There'll be better signage and educational markers and parks and that kind of thing. So it can be part of, you know, a destination that you can come bring a family, you know, and, and kind of learn this kind of part of American history and see a community that's recovering. Uh, yeah. from it. I apologize, by the way, Charles Mingus, the third, my, uh, my dog is, uh, he's really exercised about all of this, uh, all right. this topic. No worries. <laughs> Charlie, come here, buddy. Charles. 
Anyway. Sure, you just got to put him on camera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he uh, he always likes to participate. Um, you know, there there are so many individuals that you describe in the book in the, in the three separate regions, and one in particular that really caught my attention. I, I don't even know if she's still alive. Um, it was a white woman in Mississippi in this area um, that was in the courthouse when the trials were happening. Yeah. Um, and she was part of the conversations later on. I think they started in the early 90s about, you, you know, these, these conversations have had to take place over decades. Is she? Right. She's not still alive, is she? She is. Oh, she is. She must be like she, in her late 90s. She is. Yeah, she's in her 90s. She's living in California. Oh, wow. Um, but, um, but she is, in fact... Um, still very much alive and yeah, an amazing, amazing person. Uh, she comes from a, a long family. Um, Bobo was her last, her last okay. name. Um, and, um, she is, man, just this like feisty, uh, leaders, like get this done, you know? And like, I had people tell me like, uh, I, like I asked one guy, like why he agreed to serve on the Emmett Till Memorial Commission, which was the group that got off the all the stuff. And he's like, if she asked me to do it, I'm absolutely not going to say no to her. Um, right. Um, oh, that's yeah. Great. And, and so she was like a real driving force. Jerome Little, who's one of the first African-American men um, elected um, after uh, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act, which finally allowed African-Americans in the Delta to vote, um, was also kind of spearheading this event. And, and one quick thing about him, um, he grew up in the area, uh, in, in, you know, just in the same area where Emmett Till was killed. Did not hear the story of Emmett Till until he enlisted in the army and was in France. Oh wow! Yeah, and you just—it was like down the road from him, right? And he came back and was like, "Okay, we have to tell the story, right? The world knows the story, and we're suppressing it, you know, yeah. back here at home." And you described that about your own upbringing. That's you know, that's where you went to high school and college, yeah. and as you said, nowhere to be found in Mississippi's public school textbooks or history curriculum. Uh, so. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of encouraging change is is happening, but there's still so much work to do. Um, I, I do. There's so much else. I, I didn't even get to ask you about how you started PRRI and you know how you got that off the ground. But um, there, there, that's for another conversation, I guess. All right, I have to have you back. Yeah, happy to come back. Um, so I want to ask you the TPNR question. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with? perhaps even nurture relationships with people across such grave differences like the ones we're talking about today. People who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do, mm -hmm. or are educated from different textbooks than we were. How can we be better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Well, I'm going to give like one answer from just from stuff I've seen work on the ground. Um, it's very concrete. And I, I think some of those promising uh, think places I've seen it happen is when um, a predominantly white church and a predominantly black church decide not just to do something one off like, oh, let's have our pastor swap pulpits for Thanksgiving, you know, not that kind of thing, but decide to be in relationship with one another uh, over time, right? To commit to, and again, it's, it's usually things like potlucks and service projects, and it's things that allow the people to get to know each other um, over time that I've seen be really transformative because what ends up happening, um, I'll give you one example. So my, I mentioned my parents are from Macon, Georgia uh, and, and many generations back from that area. Um, there, there were two, two Baptist churches. Um, I actually wrote about in the last book uh, from there. They're both called first Baptist church. One's predominantly white, one's predominantly black. 
Um, but they began this process of just saying, you know, we, we're close by each other, but we essentially ignore each other and we're going to stop doing that. We're going to start like building in some Easter egg rolls for the kids, potluck, di- you know, potluck dinners, like those kinds of things, just very informal, not even religious really, but just things to kind of get to know one another. And some things ended up really changing um, the dynamics. And I think particularly for the assumptions that the white church, um, uh, you know, would, uh, would, would come, come with and just realizing, you know, things like when Trayvon Martin was shot, uh, for example, I think the white church and, and the pastor talked to me and said, you know, I, I'm, I would hope that we would have addressed that in our church had we not been in relationship with this African-American church. But honestly, I'm not sure we would have. Mm. It would have seemed like something that didn't concern us. Right. right? But because they were they knew that there were people that they knew now uh, who were hurting, who were scared, who were angry. They knew they had to address it uh, both kind of in their own congregation and by kind of showing up uh, for for the other one. So I I think it takes that kind of it's not rocket science, really, but it's it takes some grit and resolve um, and some time. Yeah. You know, I'm skeptical, but I hope I'm not cynical because the churches I'm most familiar with, the political and social commitments uh, are primary and the theological commitments are secondary. Uh, and the political uh, gets backed into the theological. So shards of scripture are utilized uh, and deployed to, to substantiate these political convictions, right? So it makes... Uh, it makes that type of marriage, it makes that type of collaboration and partnership almost impossible because because certain things are non-negotiable, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, it does if you start with the politics, but I think if you start with the relationship, yeah. um, you know, it's different because what what has to happen is there has to be a certain level of trust, Yeah. right, that's, that's brought up so that, you know, when, uh, you know, there's an off, offhanded remark about... Um, you know, uh, let's let's take um, you know a police shooting an African American you know person, and some white person says, "Well, if they just obeyed the police officer, none of this would have happened." Right? Yeah. yeah. And that's something I think white people feel pretty free to say, and from their own experience, uh, that feels true. Uh, but if you're in a relationship that has enough trust in it, and you're in, with an, with another African American person, they're going to say, "Well, hold on a minute. Let me tell you about what happened to my nephew." Uh, right. Let me tell you about my experience the last time I got pulled over. Right. Um, and that's different. Right. Then it's not about like what I saw on Fox News versus what you saw, you know, on NPR or what you heard on NPR. Um, but it, it's about like shared real experience. And and I think it gets us out of our corners, you know, a bit. Because, but it, it's the relationship has to be there because otherwise, you know, it'll it'll feel too risky to right. for any of that conversation to even happen. Yeah, it's too transactional and it's not relational. Um, you're right, but when when you when it's your friend who can explain, no, I don't think you understand. Trayvon yeah. wears the same sneakers that my brother wears. That's why it's personal. That's why I'm mourning. Um, yeah, you know that. Then it's uh, yeah, as you say, it's relational. Wow, I have so many more questions. I literally, I literally have twelve pages of quotes from the book. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we didn't get into. Uh, we just scratched the surface, which means everybody's got to go out and buy the book. It's so, it's so edifying. It's so informative. It's convicting. It's hard, um, but it's really as if everybody's going to watch the video. But um, you know, I, I was grateful to have both the digital and the hard copy because I was going back and forth. It was great. 
before uh, I have a, a couple more questions, but before we get to that, do you have any questions for me? Oh, it's interesting. Um, I guess I'd, I'd love to know. Um, yeah. So, you know, you've read the book and as you said, there's some pretty tough stuff. There's some uh, hopeful stuff. Um, I don't know where on that range of hope and despair <laughs> did you end up, uh, I think, after reading uh, the book? It depends what I think of first. Yeah. If, if my if the first thought that pops into my brain is the Bobo family, <laughs> I can picture her, you know. Um, I can picture some of these conversations that some of these tough conversations that are happening and the commitment, um, the gritty commitment of the people in that room that are having that hard conversation and how one word in a statement mm. um, is is worth having conversations about and coming back to the table about and allowing people to go through a mourning process and even get pissed you know, if we trust each other, we can afford to be pissed at, at something and then still come back and, mm. and, and continue to work it out. So that part gives me hope. But there are so many parts that I recognize myself in it. You know, yeah. even something relatively benign like Cowboys and Indians. I recognize myself in that. Um, and that's daunting. Uh, but I'm, I also get pissed because I, I – listen, I – going – there have been more than one Bible studies that I was kicked out of because the the assumptions that we make sometimes seem subtle and benign, but it's in the tradition of something that's really poisonous, really mm. deeply rooted and poisonous. Um, and and just asking that question, there's this natural defensiveness that happens that you're almost not allowed to ask in a predominantly white church or white Christian community. Mm. You know, my kids went to this Christian school. It was predominantly white. And you're not even allowed to ask that question. You know, you're not even allowed to say, hey, wait a second. You're, you're quoting from a piece of scripture that if you just get to the end of the chapter, it comes to a very different conclusion about, for example, immigration. Um, you know, so you, you, it, it just, I wrestle, I don't, re I don't necessarily wrestle with the theological profundity of Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus, right? Because I keep that that keeps on bringing me back, but I wrestle with the people that that claim Jesus. Mm. You know, that's that's what that's what I'm so ambivalent about. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, man. Yeah, but no, it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sometimes it's a little bit more dark, sometimes it's a little bit more light, and uh, I'm I'm bouncing. Hopefully, I'll, I'll meander my way forward. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Can I just say one thing on that? I think one of the things I'm hoping, because I think it's been necessary for me, um, it's so easy, I think, for people who are white and Christian to look away. Yeah. Right? To kind of get a little bit of this and go, oh, that's, that's too, I just, I can't. Right? right. Um, And I think one of the things I've been trying to do for myself and then trying to encourage other people who look like uh, me to do um, is to just hold the gaze a little longer, yeah. you know? Um, and, and again, not just for the sake of feeling bad, but uh, I think at the end of the day, it's for the sake of integrity, right? Um, that we've got to be able to see where we've gone so wrong if we're going to go somewhere right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard, it's a hard exercise, but a necessary yeah. one. Um, so how can folks follow you, find more information about the new book, 
more info yeah. on PRRI and uh, all the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so the book is uh, it, it is um, available uh, wherever books are sold. There's an audio book. There's an ebook. There's a hardcover. So however you want to read it, um, you know, it, it's there. Um, I'm writing weekly um, at robertpjones.substack.com. It's a free newsletter um, uh, kind of following along, you know, on this continuing this journey even beyond the book. Um, and then at PRRI, um, it is PRRI.org. Um, uh, we are a kind of nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization uh, conducting uh, public opinion surveys for the most part at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Awesome. Yeah, that's our, that's our bailiwick. That's our sweet spot. That's why I love yeah. your organization so much. This has really Thank been you. great. I'm, it's, a, it's such a thrill uh, to get to know you personally. Like I said, I, I've heard so many great things about you. I've, I've read a lot of your work, and uh, this has really been fun. I hope we get to do it in person someday real soon. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank all of you as well. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, subscribe, rate, review, and tell somebody about talking politics and religion without killing each other. Seriously, take the time to write a review really makes a difference. And telling a friend about a particular episode like this one or what we're trying to do overall, it might end up spurring you into a great conversation. And you could be talking politics and religion without, religion without killing each other. We're simplified. It's politicsandreligion.us www.politicsandreligion.us You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. It's Corey with an E and S is the Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you.